The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And if you're listening, I'm keeping you connected, keeping women and men connected on air with information and conversation. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I have three guests coming up this morning. The first one is Sharon Dogar. She is the author of Annexed, which is an account of life in hiding in Anne Frank's Amsterdam, which is particularly interesting to me because I just got back from Amsterdam and visited the Anne Frank house, so we have lots to talk about. Um, After that is Howard J. Fox. He's the author of The Truth About Men. If you guys want to hear about The Truth About Men, and and probably you women do too, uh, title of the book is The Truth About Men, Revealing the Mystery of the Men's Weekend. We're going to find out what's the men's weekend. And last is Lori David. She is the producer of An Inconvenient Truth, if you remember, Al Gore's movie, award-winning documentary, but she's written a new book called The Family Dinner, Great Ways to Connect with Your Kids, one meal at a time. But first, we have Sharon Doger or Duger, she'll tell me how to pronounce it, and she has written a book. It's a novel. It's an account of life in hiding in Anne Frank's Amsterdam annex from the point of view of Peter Van Pels, the boy who was hiding with her. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Sharon. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Is, it, is your last name pronounced Dogar or? Dogar, yeah. Dogar, yes. All right, so I went to YouTube and I saw your description of the book, and, the, and uh, I recommend that people do that, listeners do that as well, the book trailer on YouTube.com. But mm-hmm. you've written this book, you've written it as a novel, it's about the Holocaust, I guess my, and it's about Anne Frank and being in hiding with Peter. Um, why write a book about the Holocaust in a novel form as opposed to hist- historical in terms of what happened in the annex with Peter and Anne? Well, that's a good question, um, and it's a question that I've been, you know, that interests a lot of people. I think that um, I suppose the, the first and most basic answer is that is that actually not everybody reads history. Um, people study it, and it doesn't appeal to everybody, and it doesn't actually connect in the way that a story does. And I think what stories do um, help people imagine and feel in a different way sometimes to just the bare facts of a situation, however horrendous they might be. And, um, I, sorry. No, so I'm going to ask you, why write about the Holocaust now? I mean, I have my own feelings about it. That's why I, obviously, we were in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. It was an overwhelming experience to go to Anne mm-hmm. Frank's house and, and, and to, uh, it, you know, experience or try to get the feel of how it was for her to be in hiding it with her family. But why mm-hmm. is it, I mean, there's a lot of books, many books now being written about the Holocaust, movies, etc. 
why do we need to do this? Why do we need to, uh, at this point in history, I guess, um, need to understand what happened during that period of time? Well, I think that, uh, that the survivors of the Holocaust who've given us their testimony, thankfully, so that we do know what happened in the Nazi concentration camps, are dying. They're not alive to tell us anymore um, of their individual experience. And I think we need to find a new way of keeping the facts of what happened alive for every generation. And we need to do that in as many ways as possible. And I think that in terms of fiction um, you know, and the annex, we have Anne's account, which is unmatchable and beautifully written and very, very moving. But what Anne's account doesn't do is tell us what happened to the occupants of the annex once they were betrayed. And for me, that's the real story of the Second World War. It's the story of the Holocaust. And um, compared to what happened in the camps, living in the annex was actually fairly painless. What would you say is unique about your book in terms, I mean, I know it's a novel, it's not necessarily a historical description of what happened either in the annex or afterwards, but what's unique about the book? If we're going to sit down and and, and read your book, um, and children are going to be reading your book as well, and I I guess I failed to mention that you are also a psychotherapist, so you really do bring a different Mm. perspective to this whole thing, and I'd be curious Mm -hmm. as to how that makes your book different, because yes, you're an author, you've written several books, you've written children's books, but you are a therapist. So how does this whole, you know, being a therapist, what kind of a perspective did you bring to your novel? Well, I think that what the book does is it looks at how it feels internally. It gives you the external facts of what happened, but it does it from a very individual perspective. So what we get in in Annexed is we get... Peter's view, the boy who was um, hidden away with Anne. So we see what hiding might be like for a boy rather than a girl. And we feel um, how it felt for him in minute detail. And we also go through the emotional growth that happened during his time in the annex. Because despite being um, constrained in that way, he grew from 15 to 18. And um, of course, during that time, He questions why this is happening, why the world around him believes that he doesn't have the right to exist. So it it takes on board, I hope, the external facts of both the Holocaust and of life in hiding. But what I think it does that's different is it gives it you in an individual form, in the form of one person's story, and not just the facts of that story, but the feelings and the minutiae as well. I hope that's what it does, anyway. I, I think it does do that. I, I agree with you. I think another thing that you mentioned, and we don't usually associate love with the Holocaust, but you do mm-hmm. talk about the fact that there was love. There was love in 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 the when they were hiding in you know with the families in the annex mm-hmm. in Amsterdam. But there's also love in the camps. Can you talk to us about that? Because my association, obviously. Uh, before reading your book would not be, it's horrific. I think of the Holocaust and all I can think of is the word horrific. That's the adjective that comes Mm. to mind, but not love. But you talk about love. Well, um, Anne and Peter obviously fell in love, and that's recorded in Anne's diary. But the story is that 
are hugely touching do come from the camps. I mean, stories such as Anne's mother, when Anne was um, in the medical block with Skaders in Auschwitz, her mother actually dug under the wall of the medical block to pass what tiny amount of food that she had to her daughter. Anne's friend, um, Hanley, was a political prisoner in Bergen-Belsen. She discovered that Anne was in the camp. In fact, Anne was within weeks of dying. Um, and she found food and threw it over the fence to Anne. Um, Mr. Frank attributes his survival to a friend that he made in Auschwitz. And, of course, Anne and Margot protected each other for seven months before they died in Bergen-Belsen. And, and those stories are, are remarkable that, that human nature continues to be able to feel those things in such extreme circumstances. Do you think that if one survives the camps, and I've known people who have, and I've heard lectures, and also uh, friends mm -hmm. of mine, parents who have survived, do you think it's possible, I mean, one survives, but, I mean, there always mm -hmm. has to be some kind of mental, emotional scars that uh, I think that follow those who survived, and even the, ne the generations that come after that. Can you address that? Yes, I mean, I think that what, what, we, what we often find as therapists is that the, um, you know, the, the, the emotional scarring, particularly if it's something, and this is something I try to address in the book, Peter, the main character, feels the most tremendous need to tell of his experience. And several survivors talk about this need um, to be believed because they suffered terribly from the fear that they would all be wiped out and nobody would believe that it had, had really happened. Um, what, what we tend to find therapeutically is that if people do survive and can't talk about it, can't find a way of expressing what's happened to them, can't articulate it, then, then unconsciously the experience is passed on in, often in one form or another to their children and the children might suffer extreme anxiety that they can't identify. So um, I think that any traumatic experience, particularly one as massive as that, will leave a residue in the minds and hearts of the people who experienced it. But having said that, we are all different personalities, and some people recover remarkably well and find a way of managing it within themselves and don't seem to need the release of, um, of talking. You know, we, we, we remain individuals, and that, that's one of the extraordinary things about the Holocaust, is that um, people have said that it was such a traumatic experience that it destroyed individuality. I don't, I'm not sure that it did. My, I guess this will be <clears throat> maybe my last question. We have a couple more minutes left, but Sharon, tell us, what was initially... Why were you interested in the Holocaust? Does this come from your uh, personal experience, family who were in the Holocaust, friends, or um, strictly from more of an academic or therapeutic point of view? I think both. I think I've, I've, uh, I, I think personally, as um, a mixed race child growing up in the sixties, I experienced racism. Of course, I didn't experience uh, people wanting to exterminate my race. Annihilation. My did. Yeah. My father wasn't Jewish. He's, um, 
he was Indian and he was part of the um, very bloody partition between India and Pakistan. So he, he did experience race hatred and people trying to kill each other simply because of their religion. And I think that's affected me hugely. So that would be the motivation for writing this book. It's a, it's a fascinating book. I want to uh, um, direct uh, listeners to a, to a website, to your website, to a place that they can go to and, and find mm. out more about the book and also the YouTube uh, website where they can actually see you being interviewed. So why don't you give us that information? Um, well, I think you just put in Sharon Dogar YouTube for the YouTube trailer, but the um, website is www.annexed.co.uk. Yeah. And I know you have one last thing to share with us because you are, <laughs> you, right before we went on the air, you said really good news. So tell us the good news. Well, um, there's a, a national award, quite a big award in um, England and Ireland called the Costa Award. It used to be called the Whitbread, and it has five categories, and I've just been nominated for the children's book category, so I'm thrilled. Congratulations. That's really, that's very exciting, and uh, Thank you. we've been nominated. I hope you win. Fingers crossed. Yeah. When do you find out whether or not you won or not? Um, not till January. Oh, so you have you have a lot of time to wait. Anyway, it's been great talking to you. Uh, just a, a great book, fascinating book. Uh, Sharon Dogar. The title of the book is Annexed: The Powerful Story of the Boy Who Loved Anne Frank. You can buy it at uh, online and bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for asking me. Coming up next is Howard J. Fox. He's a lawyer. He's a divorce attorney. Lawyer. He's a coach. He's uh, the author of The Truth About Men, Revealing the Mystery of the Men's Weekend. We're going to find out what the mystery of the men's weekend is, so don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnist. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, keeping you connected on air with information and conversation, men and women. And you're listening to World Talk Radio, VoiceAmericaVariety.com, The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Howard J. Fox, author, businessman, divorce attorney, um, coach, business coach. He's helped many men and women through their most difficult times, says he. Um, as a men's coach and past producer of Men's Weekends, we're going to find out what those are. He has taught men to face life's challenges, achieve personal growth, and balance their lives. And he explains all this in his uh, new book called The Truth uh, About Men, Revealing the Mystery of the Men's Weekend. Welcome to the show, Howard. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. What a book. I mean, most of I, I have to say, most of the books like these, women write these kinds of books. And seldom do men. So this is your book is very unique, uh, and I think we tend to blame men for a lot of things rather than trying to understand them. Which, if one reads your book, will have a real insight into how men behave, how they operate, what's happening inside. Uh, but tell us, this book came out of men's weekends, the mystery of the men's weekends. What are they? Well. About 1995, my oldest friend in the world, and we've been friends since 1963, he said, Fox, I've done this men's weekend. I'd like you to do one, too. And I said, okay, simply because I trusted him. And what I found out by doing this weekend and going through the experiences is that while we men may be very friendly and play basketball and and, and poker together, we're essentially rather solitary. We don't really express ourselves to each other. And we're competitors in the world. And uh, by going through men's programs, we learned that uh, we can be together, companions through the, uh, the challenges of life. For example, men may commonly get together and complain about their wives or their girlfriends. And maybe that helps let off some steam. But now when I get together with my friends, we talk about, are you using the proper tools? Are you listening? Are you engaging in arguments? Are you being the rock? We go through specific technology to find out why does this man need to complain about his wife. Howard, how did you get men to go to these weekends? Because I'm listening to and thinking, well, you went to this weekend. You had a friend. You've been friends since the 60s. You trusted him. That's a big word, trust. I'm not so sure that men trust each other emotionally in the same way women do. Um, so that's a big thing. I think when women get into groups, and I'm because I'm I can speak for the woman's side, I'm going to let you speak for the men's side. But we tend to just not have, I don't think, the same kinds of issues. If we get even with women, we don't know. You know, we'll share our emotional experiences. I don't know if we're hardwired for it or what. Address this. You in your book, in the because in the introduction you said now men today most of the time only have the opportunity to be together for sports events, stuff like that. Whereas say. Thousands of years ago, they got to get their hunting and fishing, and they actually had groups that they worked together in order to preserve their families and community, and we don't have that anymore. So that's why they don't seem to be able to, 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 to get together and to, to kind of get all this stuff out or 
and, and when they do, it's either maybe at a bar where they are complaining about their, their spouses. So um, explain that. What, what, how do you get men to these, to these weekends in the first place? Well, it doesn't work by simply sales and marketing. It works by uh, being in relationship with other men, and that's to the point where they, they will trust another man who says, I'd like you to try something. So um, getting <clears throat> once the men come to a men's weekend, eventually they join, if they choose, a weekly men's meeting. And there they learn the how to show up every week and talk to each other without wearing the mask. The mask is what we wear uh, every day in society. So man will learn to show up and not just talk about the game last night or how he did something heroic, but to say, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm feeling like a 6 today. I'm not sure why, but I think it may be this particular issue. And then the men engage in sort of a Socratic question and answer a session until they help the man get to whatever he needs to get to to feel more like an eight. So, Howard, you say in your book, and this, and, and this, we call it a handbook, um, you help in doing this. You help men become better husbands, fathers, income earners, lead more balanced lives, not an easy thing to do, and succeed in romance. So let's take each one of those. How do you do that? What are some of the issues surrounding those topics for men? And, and point out the differences maybe between men and women. All right, which one would you like to start with? All right, which one would you like to start with? Let's start with the one maybe that comes up the most with men. What do they struggle with the most when they get into these men's groups? What are the issues? Better fathers? Better husbands? Well, <laughs> all, all of the above. But why don't we pick one that's very familiar to society, which we call romance. Romance, okay. Now, men are typically more involved in the sex or more interested in the sex, and women say they're interested in the romance. So we figure that means the man has to be in charge of the romance. It's his job to make his woman feel special. If he's not romancing her, well, then she doesn't feel special and she doesn't feel sexy and she doesn't give him what he needs. So when a man comes into a meeting and says, uh, I'm not getting enough, we'll start with, how are you doing on romance? And typically the answer is, what's romance? Well, I was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and the next question from the man who's being interrogated is, well, you know, romance is just such a big deal, I don't know how to do it. And, and we'll tell him, you know, romance is actually a small deal. It's the little things you do every day, every hour of the day. You tell her she looks good every, every day. You compliment her every day. Do you bring her flowers once in a while? Do you surprise her with a little gift? It's all the little things that add up to a life of romance. And when you're living a life of romance, then you're living in a much better relationship. Do you think, Howard, this has changed? I mean, you talked about, I'm sure you've, you, well, you talked about the 60s, so you've had a lot of experience. I'm not going to say how old you are, but... I like this whole romance thing because society has changed. Women are out there working, earning money, sometimes more than their spouses or partners, and sometimes men are now at home, so things change. So do you think the whole definition of romance, I mean, I have a boyfriend of 20 years, and I'm probably about your age, um, and you know what? You know what romance is to me? If he can fix my computers, my cell phone, all my stuff, I love him. I, the flowers, forget about. I mean, I need him for other things now. Yeah, the, the world has changed a bit. We're, we're all involved in business a lot. And yet I still think romance is, 
enormously important part of it, even if it only takes a few minutes of the day. Because so, you can well, okay, so the flowers, the, the attention, isn't that what you're talking about? Pay attention. If you want to have sex with them, with your partner, and you love them, or you want to be with them, that you have to give them the attention that they that they need or that they want. It may be different for different women. Well, that may be true. I coach men, and men report their results to me. How many times they have sex a week? Or no, no, no. <laughs> you know, we, the, the, one of the reasons I don't have a section about sex in my book is we're just so focused on it. It's, yes, it's all over this country, all over the media. That's why I have a chapter called Romance, because that gets us into an enhanced relationship where men don't report that they're not getting what they want. And in fact, many men find. It's, it's a worthwhile enterprise for them to be engaged in romance. They feel like better men because they're romancing their women. So they get back something different probably than what they expected. Is that what you're saying? I mean, if you start focusing more on the relationship, and you call it romance, maybe there are other definitions to use, but you're really focusing on the affection, the connection, and not on the end result. Exactly, and that leads into the tools a man has to employ in a relationship. It's hard to tell a man we need you to be more attentive, we need you to be more compassionate. That's kind of vague. So we give men certain specific tools, the first of which is listen, and and we were beginning to touch on that when we were talking about romance. And men think listening just means I look in her direction and I keep my eyes open. It's much more than that. It's interactive it's actually learning to enjoy when she talks to you. That's that's a very strange concept for men, and I don't usually put it that way, but often a man will report after a while, he says, you know, not only am I getting better at listening, but I actually enjoy listening because I feel a stronger connection with her. And when you're listening, you begin to, I, I guess this is what you're saying, you begin to really hear what they're saying. It's not just listening, hearing the noise, whatever, but it's it's more than that. And it, it is more than that. And when a man complains that his wife never stops talking to him, we say, well, that's because you're not listening. And he finds out when he listens, there's actually a bit less time talking and more time for other things. In your book, you also say, and I think this is a really good point, that if you take time to do these things, very specifically, and you go to the weekends and you open up and you do all of you know what you suggest in the book, in the long run you may save yourself from, from getting divorced from a very, you know, men will say, well, it's too expensive to go to a weekend or it's too expensive to do this or to go away with my wife or whatever it is, but in, it's much cheaper than getting a divorce and I guess, you know, being a divorce attorney, I guess you would agree with me uh, on that one. I have a true story in my book. It, it almost sounds like a joke, but two men go into a lawyer's office, and they happen to be friends, and they both say they want a divorce. And the lawyer said, you can each give me $10,000, or you can do this men's weekend. And that's a true story. I know all three of those men. And that was in the mid-'90s, and those two men are still married today. It's a great story, and and it's probably not the only story. Probably that's repeated many times over, right? Not not necessarily that you're aware of it, but that is a great story. And I think that uh, well, that's one good reason for reading the for getting the book and reading the book. We were talking about Howard's book, The Truth About Men. Um, let's talk about we have 
three minutes left, and we're going to go to break. But let's start with this one. What about fathering? Because I think, you know, just as romance and relationships with men are difficult or it's difficult for them, so is being a father. I don't know that being a father is defined societally in the same way being a mother. Being a mother kind of comes naturally. I mean, you can be a crummy mother and not do such a great job, but I don't think women are as concerned about how they do their mothering. They're pretty sure about what they want to do, even if it's not so good. But dads don't seem to be able to, the definition of what a good father is, um, is, is a little more vague. Well, the most important relationship in a man's entire life is the relationship he has with his father. And whether or not it was a good or a bad relationship, it's the, re- it's the relationship on which he models himself as a man. So many, many men grow up and become who they are because of things they admired about their father. And many men rebel against what they saw in their father. They didn't like certain things he was doing, and they become the opposite of them. And sometimes, while we're leading our whole life trying to be the opposite of our fathers, we become middle-aged and look in the mirror one day and say, boy, I am my father. (laughs) I wasn't able, I'm the fruit who didn't get to roll far enough away from the tree. So it's important for men to know that their boys are modeling themselves on what they do and what they don't do. So are these the kinds of, well, we're going to take a break. I've got another question. Um, I have many more questions, but we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, I'm talking to Howard J. Fox, who is a father, a businessman, a divorce lawyer, and a coach, and author. His new book is The Truth About Men, Revealing the Mysteries of the Men's Weekends. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show, VoiceAmericaVariety.com, and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to get ahead, you have to stand out from the crowd, the clutter, and the competition. Are you? Tune in each week for Standing Out with Lauren Saunier. Lauren and her guests have the secrets that can help you and your business get noticed, get attention, and achieve your desired results no matter where you're starting from. Standing Out with Lauren Saunier, live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get ready to be a marketing machine. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy the R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on World Talk Radio and VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And I'm talking to Howard J. Fox author of The Truth About Men, Revealing the Mysteries of the Men's Weekends. You can buy it at bookstores everywhere, online. Um, before we took the break, Howard, we decided to tackle the issue of fathering, because I think that's one of it you said in your book, and I, I agree with you. I think men defining themselves as, as fathers, it's difficult for them. And you just said that, well, the most important experience that a man has or that relationship is his relationship with his own father, good or bad. And everything kind of goes from there. Um, so when you ha- talk to a, give us some of the personal stories, or, or even your own. I always like to hear, you know, from the author's point of view, what had, was your relationship with your father? I mean, because that obviously had an impact on your life and consequently writing this book. Well, my father was... Uh... He, he was definitely a man of his times. Men went to work, and they worked long and hard hours, and they didn't really know what their role was. In fact, I didn't see him that much. Even though he was there, he was providing for us, and I, I had a secure childhood, I didn't see him much. So I was pretty much the opposite of that. I was home as much as possible. I left work early. I had uh, employers who didn't like me for leaving at 5 o'clock because I felt it was much more important to be around my children. So that's an example of how we, we look at our fathers and we evaluate it, and there are some things we want to do, and there are some things we want to do the opposite of. But, Howard, you're talking about time constraints. Can you still be a good father? Let's say the father who does work, you know, can't leave work early, uh, you know, whether he's a professional or, or he's, you know, uh, whatever he does, works on the line, what, uh, but he doesn't have a lot of time because there are men like that, but can they still, you know, we talk about quality time. I, I, what Can they still establish a good relationship? I mean, there are fathers who are home a lot, but they're not necessarily good fathers. I mean, it takes more than just time constraints to make you a good father. Yeah, and what we often hear from the new men is they're not sure what they're supposed to do to be good fathers. At the same time, they think they're being soft as fathers, and they feel like they're spectators in their children's lives. They feel like the secondary parents. And what we try to teach them is that preparing your children for life involves teaching many hard lessons, discouraging them from certain behaviors you think are wrong, and that you're not really their friend. You're the father. You are preparing them for life. And it's a very hard lesson for many men to learn because they want to be liked by their children. And what we teach them is it's much more important to be respected by your children. It's much more important that they are prepared to go through their own lives. Give us an example, one from the book or one from your experiences with the men you've worked with. Hmm. Is there one that stands out that, you know, that where someone has maybe been considered himself a friend to his kid, but it's really not working out that well because his child or his children don't really respect him. They see him as an equal. Because that's oh, I, not a good thing. I found that um, when, I, when I was finally fully mature in this work, I found that I was giving my boys push-ups. When they would do something wrong, 
or mouth off to me, I'd say, okay, give me 20. And they would drop and give me 20, and they would come up uh, laughing and in a much better mood and much more likely to behave. And what was good about that, it was a, it was a very quick and direct consequence. And it's important to know that a consequence is not a punishment. It's just teaching them that when you do something in the world, there's a reaction. If you speed, you will get a speeding ticket. If you mouth off to your father, you will get push-ups. And they like that a whole lot better than having a long lecture about why they shouldn't do certain things. And that was simply my version of uh, consequencing children. I also have a daughter, and I never had to consequence her. Because she always did the right thing? Uh, yes. <laughs> or you perceive that she always did the right thing. Or maybe there wasn't, I think, the, the, here's another piece, I think, that comes into the relationship between fathers and son, of course, is sons, uh, is competition. And I think that uh, there's something about that. I, I have two brothers, and I think my father, who was a lawyer, uh, I think there was a, a competitive piece to that, which he didn't have with me. Oh, and yeah. so that was a whole other issue that had to be dealt with in terms of fathering. Different you know, you, different genders, you're fathering, well, some people have, you know, all girls or all boys, but if you have boys and girls, it's different because, you know, it's male-female, male-male. The nuances of the relationship are very different. Yes, and if you look at some of the very old, uh, what should we call them, fairy tales, legends, folk tales, if you look at very old folk tales, a lot of them have conflicts between fathers and sons, and the son has to kill the father in order to realize his destiny. So and we have Greek tragedies. <laughs> yeah, now, we don't exactly do that every day here, but sons rebel against their fathers to establish themselves as men. So, would you say uh, it's? Well, I would say it's. It is a. It's somewhat. It's a more difficult challenge, I think, and of course, it depends on personalities. Like, but for that father-son relationship. I mean, I have sons. I have three sons, but I think I also didn't have that competitive edge because I'm a woman, so it was very different. And and sons tend to want to protect their mothers. Yes, that's absolutely true. Even though I never needed protecting. Right. (laughs) Fathers and sons. All right. Well, fathers, being fathers, those are the um, marriage, relationships with your wife, your spouse. Uh, being a good father, what are some of the, we've covered two major issues, what, what else, what are some of the other topics or, or a topic in the book that, that you address that, that, uh, that comes up a lot, I mean, that, the, that men, when they go to these weekends, seem to uh, focus on? Well, what we come up with a lot is men seem confused about what they want to do from one situation to the next, and that's because they don't know what their terms are. And a term is, is generally, it's just a short statement of fact about who I am as a man and what I do and what I don't do. And once a man knows his terms, well, then when situations present, himself, present themselves to him, he can make his decisions. So to make it very, to take some, a set of very common terms, um, I protect and provide for my family. I am impeccable at work. I keep my word, I take responsibility for my health, and I have one night a week for myself. That pretty much covers the basics of what a man needs. He he needs to go to work. He needs to do a good job at work. 
needs to be truthful. He has to take care of his health, which is where a lot of men fall down. And he needs one night a week for himself, something men don't know they're allowed to have. But isn't traditionally there's the men's night out or the go out with the boys or, I mean, maybe that's an old-fashioned concept. Um, but the other thing you just mentioned, you know, this whole thing about work, because men traditionally have defined them have defined themselves by the work they do. Yes. So what happens to men now when they can't find jobs, when they're getting fired from jobs? Uh, I mean, in the context of this economy, it's not a good one. And and not only are they not working, but their wives are out there, or their partners are out there working, making money, bringing home the bacon. Um, what does this do for men's psyche? How do they adjust to that? Because that's a reality. I think that's a reality that's you know has is not going to go away. Something we're going to have to address. Well, something you're going to have to address. It would seem to me in these in men's weekends. It's it's very hard on men because they do define themselves by their work. And uh, there there are two ways of dealing with that. One is to is to get have them develop terms around looking for work or reinventing themselves for the workplace. And another is to accept what has happened and find other ways for fulfillment. For example, if you can't work for money, you can always work for free. You can always volunteer yourself until your job comes along. You can always be out there doing good deeds for other people. So some men may sit around at home while their wife is working, feeling miserable that they're not working, and uh, the answer may be, why don't you clean the house? You're home, do something. Why don't you do the shopping? Yes, they're traditional women's roles, but A, in this world you should be doing some portion of them anyway, and B, if you're not working, why don't you do all of them? It's better than sitting around watching TV and feeling miserable. What's the response? Okay, because I think those are good suggestions. Um, have you gotten a response from men when when you when these kinds when the issue comes up and these are some of the suggestions? Yeah, it's okay to go to the grocery store. It's okay to take the kids to the pediatrician. I mean, there are lots of things to do, and they're important. And it, it's just kind of a role reversal. But I mean, in right. order for the household to maintain itself and to work smoothly, somebody's got to do it. You know, even if you don't get paid for it. So do do they, you know, start feeling good about doing that once they do engage in those activities with the kids or the household or all those kinds of things? Yeah, this generation of men has an easier time accepting that than the previous generation, although they would still rather be working. There are a few men who hold out, and I find them to usually be the more insecure men. Usually the men who are less secure about themselves as men are the ones who are more resistant to helping out around the house. Well, and I'm thinking, what about the women? See, if they get good response from their partners and are, like, so excited about, hey, you took the kids to the doctor, you, you to, the, to their sports events, to their music lessons, you went to the grocery store, you cleaned the house, I love you. No kidding. <laughs> That's romance. That's what I'm talking about. Um and it gives women more time if they're working to come home and relax and chill out. And it, it all, you know, I think it, as it plays itself out, there are lots of rewards for doing that. Yeah, and, and very often when we talk about the topic of men and men's weekends and men's organizations, people think we're, uh, we're retro, and we're not. We live in this world. We're, we're not looking to go backwards into a time when men went off into the fields and worked hard and men, women stayed home and, and grinded corn. 
those days are over. We live in this world. I think another topic, and maybe we'll have to save it for another time. We have a couple minutes left. But, uh, you know, as you're talking to me, it brings up a lot of, uh, of topics. I think one, another trend is, you know, men and women working at home and working at home together, which creates a whole other kind of dynamic. But that's, that's for a future date. Um, we got to say goodbye. But The Truth About Men, Howard's new book, Howard J. Fox, The Truth About Men, Revealing the Mysteries of the Men's Weekend. Uh, you can buy it at uh, bookstores everywhere. But also, what website can we go to, Howard, so we can get more information uh, about you? My name, howardjfox.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. I'm Catherine Fox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. We'll be back in a minute. Coming up next is Lori David, The Family Dinner. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your teams. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Sotts. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and I'm keeping you connected with information and conversation. You're listening to World Talk Radio and VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And my guest is Lori David. She's author of The Family Dinner, Great Ways to Connect with Your Kids, One Meal at a Time. Uh, you probably know Lori because she produced the Academy Award-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, but this is a whole new cause, a whole new book. Uh, she just said in the intro, today's parents, as we know, have a lot to deal with, cell phones, computers, televisions, everything makes their jobs harder. But research has proven that most issues parents worry about from drugs to alcohol, promiscuity to obesity, academic achievement to nu- nutrition can all be appro- improved. How? By the simple act of eating and talking together around the dinner table. Hence, Lori's new book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks for having me. Well, as I understand it, Laura, you are getting, like, great press from this. Everybody's so excited about the book. Um, You said to me, mommy blogs are buzzing. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I think it's a a lot of things. But um, 
the research is staggering about this issue. Uh, children who have family meals do better in almost all areas of life. This is the most important activity your kids can be doing is sitting down to dinner with you. But the funny thing is when I first started this, when my kids were little, I didn't, I didn't know about any of the research. I did it because I was desperate for some happy family cozy moments with my kids. And I wasn't getting them. And I realized, okay, well, I'm going to have to create them because it's going to be a long road of parenting here if, it's not, if I'm not having any satisfying, you know, real um, happy moments with them. I mean, my kids were colicky. I mean, there's all kinds of challenges. My husband works seven days a week. So I focused on dinner. I mean, everybody has to eat. And um, it's really a time for everything else to stop. It's one of the gifts each day gives us, and um, I'm, we really need to recapture it. And I'm hoping this book, which is filled with amazing food and great ideas for the table, will inspire everyone to, to um, grab this, this moment that each day gives us. And also, Lori, it's a fun book, and you also bring in well-known celebrities that we know about, and they share their experiences with family dinners. For instance, Katie Couric was one of them, is one of them. Uh, right. Even our president, I think this is really compelling because this really sets the stage for your book. Our, the president of the United States of America sits down and has dinner with his family every night. Now, I'd say he's a busy man. Well, listen, this is one of the great perks of his job now that, the, that he's at working at home, right? He can go down <laughs> to the dining room. But, um, and they play this great game at the table, which is called, they call it roses and thorns. We always called it highs and lows, which, you know, once a week you sort of go around the table and everybody says what their high of the week was and what their low of the week was. And what's amazing is when you throw these questions out to your kids, what, what you're going to hear as an answer. You know, when you get the conversation away from how is your day fine, you can really get into some great fun things. And I have a whole chapter about, um, things to talk about the table, because really the conversation is just as important as the food. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said, well, we've had, we had dinner every night growing up, but nobody talked. So, you know, the whole idea of sharing the meal is to bond with each other, talk to each other, to laugh and have fun. And so I really I think that there's we need... so many great ideas in this book to help people do that. Okay, so in the book, you have ideas about how to do this. And what you're saying is, I guess, is that you need something specific to talk about. Just sitting there and eating and someone's reading, the, working on the Internet or texting and someone else is watching TV is not what the family dinner is about. No, it's not. And you're cheating yourself as well as your kids if you're doing that. First of all, the television must be off. No screens at the table. The TV is antisocial and it's fattening, okay? So this is, this is a huge problem. When you're eating while you're watching TV, you are eating double the calories. You're not tasting anything. It's disrespectful to the person who pre- prepared the food, right? If you're going to go to the work to do this, you want to have a moment with your family where everybody says, gee, mom, this is delicious, right? So that's really important. So no screens at the table. And also, if you, if you, you know, put your foot down on a few rules, and there's a chapter about, you know, what my ten rules at the table have been, and they've worked. If you put your foot down, everyone's going to get used to that. And here's what's going to happen. At some point, when you break a rule, your kids are going to say, hey, you can't do that at family dinner. Then you know you've succeeded. So, Lori, give us, we don't have to do all ten rules. What are some of the rules that you think may apply to other families as well? Because every family is unique, as you point out in the book. You have to create your own family dinner in a unique way. So, but, you know, tell us, what would be some of the rules that maybe will apply to some of us? Okay, so other than the no screens, first of all, an- another big rule is everyone tries everything. Okay, so that's not like in the old days you had to eat everything on your plate. That doesn't work. We all became, you know, really good at hiding vegetables and, and flipping the peas to the dog when-, <laughs> when you had to eat everything on your plate. The rule is everyone tries everything because it takes, 
It can take up to 12 times of just tasting something once to develop a palate for it. And this is what we want our kids to do. We want them to have, you know, eat all kinds of different foods. So everyone tries everything. It shows respect to the person who prepared the food, and respect for yourself gives your palate a chance to develop. Here's another one. One meal, no substitutions. Okay, you're not, cook for your family. Don't make kids food. Make family food, delicious family food, and everyone will eat it. So one meal, no substitutions. And, of course, you know, one of the rules at my house was always tap water only. And I can tell you, first of all, kids today are getting 10% of their calories from soda. Okay, 10%. This is outrageous. First of all, it's expensive. It's heavy to lug all these bottles and juice and sodas into your house. Just give them water. And what will happen is over time, meal after meal after meal, is your kids will crave water. And that's what you want. You want them associating eating food with water. Soda can be for parties, can be for special occasions, but tap water in a glass pitcher, served in glass, not from plastic, at your table. That's an important one. Of course, everyone helps clean up. That, you know, light, many hands make light work. That's, that's a great one. Another thing is that we always had the rule that you don't leave until dessert's over, okay? And here's the reason for that. The reason is if the meal doesn't go so well, you know you have one last course to kind of get everyone back together and um, having a good time. And dessert doesn't, isn't, isn't about, you know, a homemade apple pie in the oven. Dessert is uh, maybe a cup of tea. Maybe it's a little square of chocolate. Maybe it's some cut fruit. But at least it gives everyone, it, gives, it lets everybody know that while you're eating your meal, you're there at the table until it's over. Yeah, no I like that. Early, That's probably no the one eat, I think no is eating the... fast to, to to get out of the table. I mean, you're there till dessert, and um, it just gives you the time that you need it, with each other. And I, I think it sets the tone later for the way one behaves around food. I mean, I sit in restaurants, and my boyfriend partner, he and I, will sit there, and we will be there for people sitting beside us. We've had the tables maybe changed over three times, and we're still right. sitting there eating. Uh, because well, I had that rule of growing up, and I think that's right, a really important awesome. one. And the second one that, you, or maybe it was the second one that you said about no, you don't make extra meals for each individual. It is a family dinner. And my mother used to do that. She was a social worker, um, so maybe that's why she did it. But I think it, we all love to eat and we like good food because it was like you don't want to eat it. Fine, you're going to sit here till we finish, but eat what you want or don't. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, our parents and grandparents, you know, inherently knew that the the table was the, the place that where you civilized your children, where they learned everything, not just manners, but how to listen, how to take turns, uh, vocabulary, you know, debating skills, all values, all these things are learned at the dinner table. And it's it's a very interesting point too that you know, um, I I read when you read interviews with CEOs and they talk about how they hire people, one of the main um, things they do when they're hiring a high executive is they take them out for a meal because they want to see how they behave. Can they, you know, how do they treat the wait staff? How do they deal with the conversation? So ultimately, training at family dinner is going to help your kids get a job someday. So in other words, that's a microcosm for the real world, and that's an interesting point. So, uh, Exactly. This is your first community, okay? The community of your family. This is your first experience and exposure to being part of a community and so that you have the, the skills to become part of, you know, the larger community later on in life. Do you think it's more difficult? Okay, so now there are diff- all different kinds of families today, too. There's not just the, you know, mom, dad, two kids. So does that make a difference? A single mom, single father? No, but you know. here's, here's the thing. Your family is whoever you sit down to meals with. 
That's that's if you're single and you're in um, out in the workforce, it's going to be your girlfriends or your or your workmates. That's your family, and it, it really doesn't matter um, whether you're single or. I mean, the research has shown that this is this it's irregardless of economic income, irregardless of marital status, that the power of the table works for everyone. Which so is why it's whoever, so important it's, for us to hold on to this. We should be holding on to this ritual for dear life. Because yeah. there isn't what else is happening during the day where you are purposely being a family, other than all sleeping at the same time. You need to, uh, can I have a bit of advice? I think this is such a great concept, and the book is great because, as I said, and I keep repeating, it's a very different kind of book. It's a fun book. It's something, it's, it's, it's not just recipes and cooking and stuff. But this needs to be presented at schools because you really want to kind of get this in the, you know, teachers should be, sort of discussing this book like in elementary schools, I think, because I think I, it's to- I totally agree with you, and I'll, I want to tell you about one thing that I think is so fantastic, which is on the Huffington Post, every Friday we are doing a family dinner download, which is, which is that the editors of the site are going to take one news story from the week, do a very short and snappy synopsis of it, and a question for the table every Friday. And they're going to be very age-appropriate, and um, you can go, you can subscribe to this or go on the Huffington Post on Fridays and get this great conversation started for your table about something that's happening in the world. I can't tell you how many people I interviewed who said to me, you know, my values, my worldview, my activism, my social conscious was formed at the dinner table. That's a great, uh, well, first of all, I'm going to look forward on the Huffington Post. We have 30 seconds left to go, but this has been great. Great interview, great book, The Family Dinner, Lori David. And you can go to her website, and uh, you can buy the book, obviously, online and in bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much, Lori, for being on the show this morning. Catherine, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Hope you had a good morning with us, and uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.